And good morning. How are you doing? Um, let's pray before we get into the content of what we're looking at this morning, because you've probably seen a stack of books here and we're going to need some prayer to get through it. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your living word, Christ himself, who abides in us by the spirit. And Lord, this morning we come to you. We meet together, Lord, in your presence to seek you, to know you, to be intimate with you, to be transformed by you, to become more yours every day. So, Lord, more than anything else this morning, would you, would you come near to us? Would you be with us as we, as we seek you? We ask not for our glory, but for your glory. Lord, all the, all the things that we have from this last week, all the busyness, Lord, even of today and the things ahead, we give them to you. And we ask that you would do business with us this morning, that as we are real with you, you would be real with us. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. All right. Funnily enough, this morning we're talking about citizenship and allegiance. Australian citizenship. Hands up if you were born in this country. Some hands go up. Hands up if you weren't born in this country. Very cool. It's, it's an interesting thing when we come to a day like Australia Day. I know that this morning... Um, there's a day, for those of you also who are new to Kerrang, once, if you live in Kerrang for 40 years, then on Australia Day in your 40th year, you'll be given a citizenship uh, certificate of being a citizen of Kerrang, being naturalised. I, I think there's some discussion as to whether or not it takes 40 years, but that's the number assigned to it. And when we come to think about Australian citizenship, when we think about what happened in 1788, I want to draw some parallels this morning between our experience as Australian citizens and our experience as citizens of the kingdom of God. So we know that when, that when Cook arrived here in Australia, he wasn't the first European to visit. We know that there were others who had visited before him. We've heard of Dick Hartog. We've heard of um, Van Diemen. We've heard of a, a bunch of these other different people who had visited Australia first. We know that there were also people who lived here, people who were already people of Australia, even though they weren't under a formal system of constitutional monarchy. And since 1788, in one form or another, this has been the product of a European settlement in an Asian country. We are in the middle of Australasia, and many of us here this morning are of European descent, many of us are not, but this is a country of people that are mixed from all over the world. And it shouldn't surprise us that, that as we look around, we look more and more mixed. That there are people from, from Europe, there are people from Asia, there are people from the Middle East, there are people from, from all over the world who find themselves here in Australia. And in one sense, it's the same with the kingdom of God. Scripture says that there will be people from every tribe and every nation under heaven. And so I wanted to ask this morning, if you are an Australian citizen, let's, let's imagine for a moment that we go back 100 years in Australian history. Some of you have studied Australian history. Some of you 
it's, it's going to be like mining back to the other information that we picked up when we were at primary school. But you know the pictures of what people looked like and dressed like 100 years ago. We know it was an age before there were motor cars everywhere. We know it was an age where people ate different foods than what we eat today. I had a conversation with a guy the other day who was nowhere near 100, and we were talking about cool guardies. Hands up if you ever had a cool guardie. Yeah, there we go. So we know then that if we go back 50 years or if we go back 100 years, culturally Australia would have looked very, very different. But here's my question this morning. If we went in our time machine back 100 years, would the people 100 years ago, were they any more Australian than you are today? Were they any less Australian than you are today? Even though everything about them was different, even though they dressed different, even though they probably had a different hairstyle, even though they would have had different ways of getting around the place, different forms of transport, even though everything about their lifestyle was different, what was it that made them Australian? And I want to suggest this morning it was their allegiance. In the same way, my parents who live overseas and a lot of people who live overseas still call themselves Australian. They're not geographically located here anymore, and there are people who come and are geographically located in this nation who certainly don't call themselves Australian. So what is it that's, that's different? And I would suggest this morning it's this thing about allegiance, and it's the same with the kingdom of God. Where is your allegiance? And if allegiance is the thing that really connects us into the kingdom of God, if allegiance is the thing that connects us to Australia, then it means that we should expect that allegiance just as there is a myriad of ways that people express their allegiance to Australia, both presently and historically and overseas. There will be a myriad of ways that people express their allegiance to Christ. So we're going to have a look this morning at what it is that unites us. We're going to carry on from where we were last week. And we're also then going to have a look at some diversity in that. This is some of the stuff that we looked at last week. We were talking about how if you want to be intimate with God, the way that God has decided to be intimate with you, the way that your entire relationship connects to God is through the indwelling of the person of the Holy Spirit, that Christ exalts the Holy Spirit. The Father gives the Holy Spirit all of this responsibility that the Holy Spirit is the way that you are connected to Christ, that Jesus is not with us bodily, but the Spirit dwells within us. And we had a look at passages of Scripture like this. So John sixteen twelve, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear, but when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. You remember, we talked about all of these things to go, okay, if we want to know Christ, it's the Spirit who connects us to Christ. That we know it's the Spirit, as Scripture says, that draws us together into a living temple. That God does not inhabit a temple built with bricks and mortar, but he inhabits the praises of his saints. That you and I are the temple. If we were here this morning and we didn't have a building for whatever reason, we would still be the temple of God. John 15, 26, when the advocate comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. Ephesians 4, 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And this is one thing I want to look at this morning. In terms of allegiance, in terms of your citizenship in the kingdom of God and in heaven, the Holy Spirit is the seal. And that we're not sealed with an inanimate object. We're not sealed with wax. 
and the impression of someone's ring, we are sealed with a person, and that is the person of the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 9.14, Romans 8.15 and 16, more passages that we looked at last week. If the Spirit is in you, then that will have an effect on your life. That there should be a difference between those of us who have come to faith in Christ Jesus and in whom the Spirit indwells and someone who doesn't have that. Because throughout Scripture it's called, there's all these different pictures, moving from death to life is one of them. Jesus says to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, unless you are born of water, physical birth, and unless you are born of the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Something has to shift. Something has to change. But what this looks like throughout Christianity, just as what we talked about before with our Australian allegiance, allegiance plays out differently in different people's lives. And if our allegiance is not just a decision, if it's not just an inanimate thing or concept or or mental construct, if our allegiance is also tied up in another person who abides with us, then the way your allegiance to Christ plays out, the way your Christianity plays out, the way the kingdom of God plays out in your life is actually this amazing relationship between you and someone else, between you and the Spirit of God. Your Christianity is not up to you alone. Your faith, your walk, the way you express your love for God is not up to you alone. It is a decision. It is a relationship. It is this beautiful dance that exists between you and the Spirit of God. And it's there in every moment, in every decision, whether it's buying a coffee or parking your car, whether it's dealing with a customer who's just going nuts. In every single situation, the Spirit of God abides with you. And in all of these small situations, our behavior changes. So what we're going to have a look at now, and this is why I have some of the books here, is rather than me explaining to you some things that go on, I thought we could have a quick trip through history and hear from some from different eras in Christianity, some of the things that people found going on in their lives with the Spirit of God. So we're going to start this morning with this guy, and I'll tell you who he is in just a moment. Let me talk to you about a young guy called Francesco. His original name was Pietro Bernardoni, but he called Francesco. That was his nickname, the Little Frenchman. His mother was French, and he learned his mother's native tongue at her knee. He was a fun-loving leader of a frolicking group of young men from the area, and this is in about the year 1200, so this is quite some time ago. Up to the 25th year of his age, he squandered and wasted his time miserably. Indeed, he outdid his contemporaries in vanities, and he came to be a promoter of evil and was more abundantly zealous for all kinds of foolishness. I know none of you can relate to that. In his early 20s, he left home to fight in a bloody skirmish with a neighboring city where he was taken as a prisoner of war. A one-year incarceration there, along with a one-year convalescence back home, proved to be a critical turning point. In the the dark, lonely months, Francesco experienced an ever-growing, ever-deepening, converting grace. Pietro Bernardoni, who was his father, was livid about Francesco's new life when he decided to become a priest, especially the young man's lavish generosity to the poor with his father's hard-earned money. 
Finally, in an act of desperation, he called his recalcitrant son before the local bishop demanding justice. Francesco responded by renouncing all claims to his father's estate and returning all goods, including the clothes off his back, so that he stood naked before the bishop. Then he turned to his father, saying, Until now I called you my father, but from now on I can say without reserve, Our father who art in heaven. He is all my wealth, and I place all my confidence in him. And so mindful of the jugglers that accompanied the French troop, uh, troubadours as they travelled, Francesco declared that he was the juggler of God, living in utter poverty and wandering through towns and villages preaching the gospel. Many of the young men who had been part of his thrill-seeking circle in earlier days joined him. Another person joined him too, a friend called Claire Favaroni, a well-to-do young lady from Francesco's hometown. Thus began one of the great spiritual movements of history. See, Francesco is actually Francis of Assisi. And here's the story which is quite interesting. His friend Claire, who had established the second order of the Franciscans, the poor Clares. And by the way, um, St. Francis of Assisi was never ordained. He was never properly ordained as a bishop. He was never properly ordained as a monk. He simply started an order, and then eventually the Catholic Pope gave his approval to it. But this second order, the poor Clares, his friend Claire had often requested the opportunity to eat with Francis, but he never granted her request. Finally, some of the brothers urged him to consent, saying, Father, it seems to us that this strictness is not according to divine charity. Equally considering that she gave up the riches and pomp of the world as a result of your preaching. In the end, Francis was persuaded, and so a meeting was arranged at the little church of St. Mary of the Angels. Francis had a meal prepared and spread out on the ground, as was his custom. Meeting at the appointed hour, St. Francis and St. Clair sat down together, and one of his companions with St. Clair's companion. And all his other companions were grouped around the humble table. As they ate, Francis began to speak about God in such a sweet and holy and profound and divine and marvelous way that he himself and St. Clair and her companion and all the others who were at that poor little table were wrapped in God. In the meantime, the people of Assisi, the local town, were horrified to see in the distance the church, St. Mary of the Angels, and the entire forest around it enveloped in flames. They rushed up the hill, hoping to put out the blaze before everything was lost. But upon arriving at the little church, they found nothing amiss. No church on fire, no forest ablaze, nothing. Entering the church, they discovered Francis, Claire, and the others sitting around that very humble table, wrapped in God by contemplation and invested with power from on high. They then realized that the fire they had seen was not a material fire, but a spiritual fire. Imagine that in Kerrang. The alarm goes off. The guys rock up, they jump in the truck, they get out there, and it's quite peculiar. The blaze they saw was to symbolize the fire of divine love, which was burning in the souls of these simple servants of Christ. The end result of this astonishing event was that people of Assisi returned home with great consolation in their hearts and with holy edification. And here's the point. There's, there's a, a whole bunch of other things which get discussed here about this young man's life. But we are told that after one astonishing miracle, Francis remained in the area because of the great good which he saw the Lord performing in the souls of the people who came there. For he saw many of them were inebriated with the love of God and converted to heavenly longings. Bear in mind, this is from an ancient Catholic reference. This is, this is several hundred years before the Reformation, where Protestantism comes into existence. This is the point of all the miracle stories. Nor were all the miracles of an outward nature. Many, in fact, were deeply interior. 
involving unusual discernment and wisdom, whether outward or inward, the results were always the same. However, deeper love of God, greater holiness of life, full of freedom in the spirit. There are stories like this that that litter history books about Christianity, that when people desire to get close to God, occasionally peculiar things happen. And in every denomination, there is a history of peculiar things happening when people desire to get closer to God. But what they all come back to, and this, if anything, I would suggest, whenever you do reading, whenever you watch a DVD, whenever you do research, this this summarized it quite well. Does it cause someone to seek greater glory for Christ? Does it lead someone to a life of holiness? What's the fruit of any of these things? So that's story number one, Francis of Assisi. Story number two, Cyprian of Carthage, actually jumping back to, uh, to the third century. Um, in the early church, for about the first 300 years, we've talked about this before, the first 300 years of Christianity, everyone argued about who Jesus was. And so from the first several centuries of Christianity, we don't get much discussion in, in the literature about the nature of the Holy Spirit because everyone was arguing about Jesus and people were running for their lives. People were under persecution, particularly around the Mediterranean from the Roman Empire until all the wheels fell off eventually. But Cyprian of Carthage is talked about by um, this author, Sam Storms, because there are references made to the presence of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, people with an understanding that there is a sense of intimacy that sometimes comes from the Spirit. And he writes this, Although Cyprian, Bishop of, uh, of Carthage, spoke and wrote often of the gift of prophecy and the receiving of visions from the Spirit, he was also responsible for the gradual disappearance of such charismata. And the word charismata literally means giftedness. The word charis means gift. So technically... If someone calls you a charismatic bricklayer, it means you're a gifted bricklayer. In our culture, the word charisma, often we think about it as personality. Technically, that's not what it means whatsoever. It's about a person's giftedness. So you can be a charismatic mechanic. You can be a charismatic bricklayer. You can be a charismatic farmer. And it's nothing to do with your personality. It's to do with how good you are, how gifted you are at what you actually do. And so charismata in in scripture or when we read about it in in books about the Bible, refers to gifts. The disappearance of such charismata from the life of the church. He, among others, insisted that only the bishop and priest of the church should be permitted to exercise these revelatory gifts. And this is something else that we see throughout throughout Christian history, is that whenever, whenever there's something that happens in the life of a church which seems to give someone authority or which seems to give someone um, power or control or any of these sorts of things, often it ends up being sectioned off to an elite group of people. And this is something which the Baptist denomination sprang out of the Reformation against. One of the tenets of, of the Baptist theology right at its heart is the priesthood of all believers, that you before Christ serve as a priest, that I before Christ serve as a priest. I'm your priest, you're my priest that you don't need to go to someone else in order to talk to God, that you can have a direct relationship with God. And this is summarized as the priesthood of all believers, that you don't need an intermediary. And the extension of that speaks against Cyprian's attitude, as it's recorded here, in that if the Holy Spirit wants to use you to do something, he's allowed to do whatever he wants, that you don't go from being a semi-Christian, a Diet Coke Christian, 
to being a real Christian to being a caffeine-enriched Christian, that, that there's not a rank and tier system of what it means to be in Christ. Interesting point, the word clergy does not appear in the New Testament. The only word that's ever used in the New Testament to refer explicitly to the people of God is laity, laos. Scripture puts everyone on an equal footing. Scripture says that there are some people who are gifted to serve the body of Christ, but that doesn't speak about someone's spiritual condition. That speaks about the way they operate to serve the body. So that's Cyprian of Carthage. And sorry, this is Francis of Assisi. Who do we have next? Strapping young fellow. Don't worry, the, the, the pictures get more charming the closer we get to the modern, the modern age. This is a guy by the name of John Owen. And John Owen uh, was around the time of the Reformation and he's referred to as a Puritan. Who here knows what a Puritan is? You ever heard the word Puritan? America um, is generally regarded as being settled by primarily Puritans who were trying to get out of England because they wanted to be able to practice Christianity um, in the way that they wanted to. And so this is an author from around about the same time. And he has this to say. The promises concerning the mission of the Holy Spirit in John's gospel, and this is about 1616 that he wrote this. The promises concerning the mission of the Holy Spirit in John's gospel are not all to be confined to the apostles, nor to the first age or ages of the church. So around about this same time, 1616, is when the, the Baptist denomination emerges out of the Reformation for the first time in history. So right at the start of it, this is the sort of things that were being written um, by other, other contemporaries of that movement. Many things in these promises did apply particularly to the apostles and had their fulfillment. The apostles were commanded to wait by Christ to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit before they engaged in their work. When fully empowered, they were enabled to fulfill the tasks Christ called them to. But this promise is not restricted to the apostolic office. It is not an external guidance into all truth by the objective revelation of truth that is meant. So in other words, he says, when the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth, it's not an external thing. It's not a head thing. For this kind of revelation is not granted to all believers, nor are believers to look for such revelations. And the revelation of truth by the preaching of the gospel is not what is meant, since this is common to all the world and not subject to any special promise. So it is the internal teaching of the Holy Spirit giving an understanding of the mind of God and of all revealed sacred truths which is intended. It is the same as the promise in John 6:45, they shall all be taught by God. For this is how we are taught of God and in no other way. The Holy Spirit leads us into all truth by giving us that understanding of it, which we ourselves are not able to arrive at. And he speaks about um, in scripture where we find the Ethiopian eunuch who's sitting and has scripture open in front of him and cannot understand until someone who actually knows about Christ, someone who has the Holy Spirit with them, comes alongside and then his eyes are opened and he's able to comprehend what Scripture means. All spiritual, divine, supernatural truth is revealed in Scripture. Amen to that. To come to know and to rightly understand this truth in Scripture is the duty of all, according to the means which each enjoys and the duties which are required from them. To make this possible, the Holy Spirit is promised to them. Of ourselves, without his special assistance and guidance, we cannot arrive at a true knowledge or a right understanding of the truth revealed in Scripture. By the unction and anointing, 
which John mentions the Holy Spirit and his work are meant, that the Holy Spirit in his special work is called an unction or is said to anoint us is clear from many places in Scripture. And so even 400 and... No, it's just under 400. 398 years ago then, if this is what, 1616, the stuff that we're talking about today was being talked about by Christians, saying there's this inner witness, there's this inner thing of the Holy Spirit which goes on, that it's not just about head knowledge. There's, there's something that happens on a very real, very gut level. Now we get on to one of my heroes. Charming. How's that? See, when I, when I pulled these pictures up, this is John Wesley, by the way. I thought it's almost like young Elvis and old Elvis. <laughs> and I contemplated putting pictures up of young Elvis and old Elvis. And then I thought that's probably not appropriate. John Wesley. Um, we'll start with this book. Methodism um, comes back to this man. He was an Oxford scholar and incredibly well-educated incredibly well educated and if you ever want to read uh, an interesting guide to raising kids read some of the stuff that his mum wrote it is so harsh it's it's astoundingly harsh but john um we know he grows up with his brother charles and they write a whole lot of hymns that's probably where most of us would have heard the name before but as an oxford scholar he he was adamant he wanted to be a real Christian. And he kept saying to people, I want to be a real Christian. I want to be a real Christian. And so in his spare time, he filled all of, all of it up with learning Latin, with learning German, with learning ancient Greek, because he said, oh, if I want to understand the Bible, I need to learn the languages of ancient Christian thinking and writing and dialogue. I want to read everything that everyone anywhere has ever written. Incredibly driven man. And he had a little group of people who would meet with him at Oxford, and they were called the Oxford Bible Moths because people thought these stuffy, uptight, highly strung people who just hide away in, in a university library, you know, what good are they? And they actually said they are, they are so methodical in the way they use their time that the term Methodist was actually an insult. Originally, it was an insulting term. Oh, you're a Methodist. It's like you're a sub-rate human being. That's originally the term. And John Wesley's response was, I'm happy to be called a Methodist. That's good. Let's run with it. And so what happens is Methodism begins, like he was an Anglican, and it begins as this movement within Anglicanism which eventually separates out. But he travels across at one point as a missionary to America, and a whole bunch of things go wrong in America. But on the way between America and England, backwards and forwards, he is in a, an incredibly violent storm an incredibly violent storm, and he's, he's fearful for his life. And he is deeply upset with himself because he says, wait a sec, where is my assurance? I am afraid to die. I'm afraid to die. And for him, he, he fixated on this, and he said, how can I call myself Christian? How can I say I actually have this assurance in Christ if I'm afraid to die? And he wrestled with that for, for quite a few years. He was in a similar experience sometime later. And in the middle of, of another storm, he can hear these people singing on the boat. And he's, he's wetting himself. He's afraid to die. And he thinks it's imminent. He's about to meet his maker and he can hear people singing. The following day, he goes and he talks to them because the storm clears. And it was a group of people who were German believers called Moravians. And he spoke to them and he said, you, you're not afraid to die. And the response was, no, of course not. Even our women and our children, we're not afraid to die. And this craving for this inner assurance comes up more and more and more. 
And eventually he has a peculiar experience, which some of you may have read about before. He writes this. We have incredibly extensive journals from John Wesley. That's why we have some of this information. May 24th, 1738, Wesley relates, his spirit was marked, my spirit was marked by strange indifference, dullness and coldness, and unusually frequent relapses into sin. That's May 24th. And then he talks about this. He goes to a church meeting in a little place called Aldersgate. In the evening, I went very unwillingly. I love that. It's honest. I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans about a quarter before nine when he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ. I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ. Christ alone for my salvation and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and and saved me from the law of sin and death. And it transforms, transforms everything, transforms the way he does ministry. I found this picture actually. Hey, I just met you and this is crazy, but I'm John Wesley. My heart burns strangely. (laughs) For those of you who understand the, uh, the pop culture reference, I'll let you explain it to people afterwards. But something changes in his heart. You could not ask for someone who had spent more brain time digging through Scripture, someone who had had the sort of upbringing which he had had, someone who could read and write these ancient languages, someone who was so swimming in head knowledge, and all it takes is this tiny little touch from the Spirit of God that he felt his heart strangely warmed. Just for an instant, there is no other record in his writings that this sort of thing is an ongoing thing. But all of a sudden, he has this assurance about the intimacy, about the nearness, that the Spirit of God has actually heard him in all of his striving, in all of his pleading. And then strange things start to happen. Um, One of his detractors. So later on, Methodism gets into trouble, and that's part of why it has to split from Anglicanism. And people are upset with Methodists because they're crossing parish boundaries to preach to people. Interesting stuff. Just 10 days after this encounter while in Bath, this is one of his detractors writing, while Wesley was exhorting a society meeting in Wapping, some of the people collapsed. Others trembled and quaked, and still others were torn with a kind of convulsive motion in every part of their bodies. And that so violently that even four or five persons could not hold them. Of this occurrence, Wesley himself remarked, I have seen many hysterical and many epileptic fits, but none of them were like these. Naturally, reports of these disturbances spread throughout the land such that even Wesley's elder brother, Samuel Jr., began to ask, did these agitations ever begin during the use of any collects of the church or during the preaching of any sermon that had before been preached within consecrated walls? And there are other, I won't go into the other records here, but there are other reports of where the meetings which these Methodists would have were described very very negatively as being enthusiastic. And Wesley himself was was accused of enthusiasm. (laughs) Sounds interesting to us. But this was an accusation that if you were enthusiastic, something was wrong. 
What's interesting, though, is in some of the other records about what happened at the meetings that the Methodists would have, where something, something that was not just physical would start happening, is that oftentimes there would be people who would collapse. There would be people who would start to shake. There would be people who would, who would so violently start to act out that they couldn't be strained by four or five other people. It's recorded that Wesley's most common approach in those, in those situations was that he would ask the Spirit of God to bring order and to bring calm, to restore peace, and that something would happen and that everything would just quieten back down. And all of a sudden, the people who couldn't restrain themselves had control over themselves again. Fascinating stuff. This guy, Charles Parham. Charles Parham and William Seymour. Around about 1902, America still had a lot of racial segregation. And um, a relative of William Seymour um, was working as a housemaid in uh, Charles Parham's house. And this guy, when Charles Parham, when he would preach, there would be strange things that would start to happen at their church meetings. And so this relative of Seymour's knew that he was hungry to, to get near to God, that he wanted, he wanted something apart from head knowledge, so sent him along. And there was a whole lot of very peculiar things that happened. And it was in, they got kicked out of the Methodist chapel they were in, and they wound up in a Salvation Army building, which was a disused Salvation Army building, which I, in 1902 maybe that was at the bottom rung of where you could expect to go church-wise. But out of the stuff that started happening, out of these peculiar meetings, there was a very strong sense that the Spirit of God would turn up, that there would not just be the general, what, what often we're taught and what often we understand, that if, if you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Spirit of God abides in you. And we understand there is a general abiding for all believers. But this is like some of these other situations that we've and we've read about where there is something referred to as by some people as the manifest presence of God that turns up, something akin to when the pillar of fire or the pillar of cloud was with the Israelites. We understand that God is omnipresent. We understand that God is all-powerful, that he is everywhere, but there is a peculiar thing that seems to happen throughout Christian history where occasionally, I don't know how to describe it, he turns up in one spot. There's a lot of different words I've heard used to describe this. Some, some people refer to it as an anointing. Some people use uh, a Greek word, rima, the revealed presence of God or the revealed word of God. But this is what happened in 1902, this similar sort of event. And out of that became what we know as the Azusa Street Revival. This was the birth of Pentecostalism. And theologically, there are a whole bunch of strange ideas that came in with that because as people living in 1902 in a racially segregated America, Parham would still not let Seymour preach in his church unless he was accompanied by a white man. There were other different strange doctrines which, which people brought in. People thought that for some of these gifts which seemed to erupt at the time, like the prophetic giftings or speaking in tongues, glossolalia, which we'll do a study on one of these days, 
that any of these things which seem to come out of these events, people said, oh, that's the real evidence that you're saved. If you don't do these things, then you're not saved. There were all of these strange ideas that came in with it, things which now we've had a 100 years to critique. But there's all these different events throughout church history about occasionally when people desire to get near to God, what comes out of it, like what we looked at a minute ago, is a desire for holiness. It's a desire to be transformed. Fundamentally, this this is the fruit that we're looking for, is to know Christ and to be transformed. So when these sorts of other events happen, like with John Wesley or like with John Owen or like with, with even the stuff that was being talked about by Cyprian of Carthage, there's always, there's always a desire, I think, for us to go, you know what, if, if we desire to get near to God and something strange or peculiar happens spiritually, that can lead to strange doctrines. Therefore, let's avoid all of it. That is certainly one approach. The Another extreme approach is to say, oh, we really, really want to see the strange things, so we're just going to run headlong in and abandon wisdom and abandon being tethered to Scripture. And this morning I'm talking to us as, as a church, as a group, but also for you as an individual, that we have to do both. We have to go, all right, Lord, whatever you want to do, you're God and I'm not. I'm going to seek you. I'm going to seek to be near to you. I'm going to keep tethered to scripture, tethered to wisdom. If there is ever anything which contradicts your, your word, if there is ever anything that contradicts scripture, I'm going to be on that like a hawk. That has to be our approach. One more story, more modern one. Jack Deere. Some of you would be familiar with this book, Surprised by the Power of the Spirit. Fascinating book. Jack Deere, formerly an associate professor of Old Testament at Dallas Theological Seminary. He lost his job because the, uh, the college that he worked at, the seminary that he worked at, said that the Holy Spirit doesn't do things like this anymore. And he had a profound change of thinking and he lost his job. I'm going to read three pages. Kevin Forrest became a Christian. This is one of Jack Deere's stories. Kevin Forrest became a Christian shortly after his graduation from high school. His past had not been good. He had grown up in an immoral climate and various forms of sexual immorality had enslaved him at one time or another. For about a year after his conversion experience, he managed to stay out of immorality. Then he fell back into bondage. About that time, he met and married Regina. In many cases, marriage will stop immoral behavior, but it did not work that way in Kevin's case. Even after marriage, he continued his immoral life, but Regina did not find out. They began a family. A son and a daughter were born to them, but Kevin continued his adulteries. Regina did find out about one affair. It broke her heart, but she forgave Kevin. For Kevin's part, he lied about the other affairs, promised to be faithful and resumed his adulterous practices. In 1986, their two-year-old daughter Haley died from a brain tumor. Kevin's grief turned into anger against God. Why would God take his baby girl? 
to punish him for his secret sins. Yet not even the loss of his daughter could bring Kevin to repentance. He continued to leave to lead two lives. The one that everyone saw was the church-going faithful husband and father, but in secret he was entangled in sexual immorality. As Kevin slid into deeper darkness, Regina got closer and closer to the Lord. Kevin started despising her for this closeness. In July of 89, the Forrests were living in Santa Maria, California, and attending um, the Christian Fellowship. With divine help, Regina found out about a small part of Kevin's unfaithfulness. After the first confrontation, Regina called her pastors for help. The pastor's wife went to the forest home to comfort Regina while Kevin ended up at the home of two other pastors. Kevin had two alternatives in mind. He was either going to kill himself or run away to start a new identity. His pastors came close to using physical force in order to restrain him. Paul Kane was in town that week to speak at a conference that the church was hosting. The night of the blowout between Kevin and Regina, the Lord gave him a vision of the forests. When he awoke the next morning, he called Carl, the pastor of the church, and said, there's a domestic problem in your church. That's right, Carl said. Her name is Regina. What's his name? Asked Paul. It's Kevin. Listen, Carl, this guy wants to run. Don't let him do it. Make sure he's in the meeting tonight. The Lord may do something for him. Then Paul hung up. Both Kevin and Regina came to church that night, but they were not sitting together. At the end of his message, Paul asked Kevin to stand up. A man named Kevin jumped up immediately, but it was not Kevin Forrest. Paul said, no, you're not the Kevin I saw in the vision. There is another Kevin here. Then slowly Kevin Forrest stood up. Kevin, I don't want to embarrass you, but your marriage is on the rocks, Paul said. Last night I had a vision of you and Regina. That's your wife's name, isn't it? I don't want to embarrass you. I want to restore you. The Lord calls your wife upright, but Satan has led you into sin. He has tried to destroy you. He has a contract on your life. You're 28 years old and the devil plans to kill you before your 30th birthday. He hasn't been able to kill you yet, but he has killed your baby. Satan killed your baby, not God. Kevin felt as though his heart would break in two when Paul said this. He had been angry with God for his daughter's death, but it wasn't God who took his daughter. Kevin's agreement with evil had given the devil an opportunity to hurt his family. Satan wants to kill you because he knows what God has for you and your, life, uh, and your wife. Where's your wife? Paul asked. There you are, Regina. Paul looked at Regina and appealed to her like a father. Regina, please trust me in what I'm about to say. You must forgive this man of all the things that were uncovered and revealed. Paul asked both of them to come down the front of the church and stand before him. Regina, you must be upright. Satan is the one who is your enemy. Last night the Lord showed me that your baby is dead and your brother is dead. Regina's brother had died three months before their daughter had died. It's an all-out attack on you. The devourer is at your doorstep, but the Lord said that your lives and marriage are going to be restored. The only way out is total forgiveness, making your sacred vows over again. The Lord has said this is the only way out. Last night was the dark night of the soul, but things could be worse. The Lord showed me that you have two children who need you. Kevin, for God's sake, repent tonight. The Lord is going to help you. Kevin, look at me from this night on because you've repented. And Regina, you are going to have to forgive this man because the Lord said after midnight tonight, your husband will never again be called Kevin, but he's going to be called John, which happened to be his middle name. Let's praise the Lord for that. Lord, I pronounce a blessing on every torn marriage, every sick and diseased life here. I pray that you'll heal them from the cancer of that marriage. I pronounce you all over again, man and wife. I want you to meet all over again, the new John and Regina. Amen. I want you to thank the Lord for that. And then he makes a statement about it. What I've just written does not come close to adequately describing what took place in the church that night. People were overcome by the presence of the Lord. 
Some were weeping uncontrollably. Some, afraid that their own sins were going to be revealed next, had begun repenting. Others were worshipping the Lord for his tender mercy and omniscient power. I won't go through and read the rest, but he goes on to explain what happens in a church when the Holy Spirit does something like that. And it's, again, what we've looked at in these other situations. Conviction of sin, people desiring to get near to God and also to get real with God, to start to work through some of the stuff, some of the muck. What has this got to do with Australian citizenship? If you're an Australian citizen, it's the one thing that ties us all together is your allegiance to Australia. That's why you can bump into an Aussie overseas. And if you say Aussie, 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 you can tell if they're, yeah, yeah, you can tell if they're genuine. Because there's this thing that attaches to our identity. And it's the same with the kingdom of God. If you're a kingdom of God person, if there is really a sense that you are plugged into the spirit of God and he unites you to your brothers and your sisters, some of you will have experienced this. You can be on the other side of the world. And when you sit down next to someone and someone says, oh, oh I'm a Christian, and, and you enter into conversation, you can sit and pray with that person and there's, there's a foreign, strange intimacy because the Spirit has brought you together. But just as we are Australian citizens and we dress differently and our allegiance to Australia plays out differently, we're not all the same personality. We don't have the same haircuts. We don't have the same way of, of going about things. So your citizenship in heaven and the spirit who unites you to Christ, the spirit who unites you to the Father, there's a myriad of expressions. Throughout history, there has been a myriad of expressions. And if you desire to draw near to Christ through the spirit, then the Holy Spirit will never, will never change you into someone who you're not. The Spirit of God will always make you more truly who you are. The Holy Spirit will always transform you into who Jesus wants you to be, who Jesus designed you to be. And for us to be able or willing for the Spirit of God to express through us our connection to Christ. We've been talking the last few weeks about getting close to God, drawing near to God wanting to know him, wanting to love him, wanting to get back to that place of just being consumed by him. If you draw near to him, one of the effects is that he will make you more yourself. He will show you who he wants you to be. He will show you how to express your love in a way which is beneficial for the body, which is beneficial for everyone. One allegiance, one citizenship by one spirit but many expressions. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have always been intimate with your people. We thank you that where people have sought to know you, where people have sought to understand, but not just in a head way, that you have come near to them, that you have brought about intimacy, that you have brought about holiness, that you have brought about conviction of sin, that you have brought about healing and restoration, that you have brought about assurance. 
Lord, we ask for these things that we would be able to be intimate with you, that we would have an ongoing conviction of sin, that we would have an ongoing assurance. Lord, if your people do not desire to draw near to you, then how can we be called your people? Lord, would you please have your way amongst us? Would you please continue making us your people? Would we be satisfied with nothing else in this world except you yourself? Lord Jesus, please have your way. Amen.